AirPods Pro with adaptive audio. Automatically keeps out the sounds you don't want to hear so you can listen to your music. And lowers your music to let in the sounds you do need to hear. Hi there. Hi, what can I get you? I'll have a strawberry mango coconut probiotic smoothie with wheatgrass. Anything else? Extra wheatgrass. Here you go. AirPods Pro with adaptive audio. Available on AirPods Pro second generation when enabled. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is the Bloomberg Business of Sports show, where we explore the big money issues in the world of sports. I'm Scarlett Fu. And I'm Damien Sassauer. Michael Barr will be joining us later in the show. Damien, we're covering a lot of ground today. That's right, Scarlett. We're getting ready for the start of college football with Amy Prevet Perko. She's CEO of the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics. Perfect timing, right? We're going to talk to her about all the conference moves lately, what it means for her proposal to restructure collegiate sports from top to bottom. We don't have to do it this way. There can be a separate entity for college football and a, and a separate entity for all the other sports. And let's, let's do what makes sense, what's in the best interest of the athletes in all sports. Plus, we'll get a check-in on some legal drama in sports. We'll get up to date on two NBA teams suing each other and learn why former USC star running back Reggie Bush is filing a defamation lawsuit against the NCAA. All of that is straight ahead on the Bloomberg Business of Sports. But first, we take a look at mixed martial arts. Chatri Sayatong is founder and CEO of One Championship. It's a massive mixed martial arts platform. And right now, it is one of the biggest sports entities in Asia. Michael and Damien got a chance to sit down with him and talk about the league, its growth, and Chatri's journey. First of all, Chatri, thank you so much for joining us on the Bloomberg Business of Sports. Thank you for having me, guys. I appreciate it. Let's talk about One Championship. Something now that has taken off and it's uh, it's big on Netflix. Tell us more about that. Um, One Championship is the world's largest martial arts organization, according to Nielsen, in terms of viewership and engagement numbers around the world. Um, we're a, a brand new um, brand, if you will, in the U.S., um, but we're making uh, a, a big push into the U.S. We had our very first event um, a few months ago and then we're going to have four more events on ground in the U.S. next year. So big things are happening and it's, it's, it's going to be a lot of fun. Chatri, we can spend all day talking about, you know, one championship about combat fighting. But I really I mean, we have to go back to the beginning, man. I mean, we got to go back to Muay Thai. We got to go back to the Asian financial crisis. You know what? The, what what basically Muay Thai meant to you, what it did for you. Uh, your time at Harvard. I want to hear it all. I want to hear the whole story. I mean, we only have four hours, so please just let us have it. <laughs> Um, The short version is that uh, I was born into a well-to-do family in Thailand, um, but the Asian financial crisis uh, wiped out our family, and my father ended up going bankrupt, and um, he eventually abandoned the family. Um, And so it was my mother, myself, and my younger brother struggling in poverty, uh, eating one meal a day. Um, And... uh, it's kind of funny because when I look back on my life now, I'm full of gratitude uh, for those days in poverty. I know it sounds kind of odd, but it really, um, there are so many incredible life lessons, um, not only about yourself, but about life uh, when you go through um, poverty. I mean, you know, of course, one is fire in the belly, the grit, the resilience that you discover you have um, by going through such adversity, but also, I have a real deep compassion and empathy uh, for our athletes, many who come from impoverished backgrounds. Uh, and so it, it's, I don't know, life come full circle. And I've been doing martial arts my entire life, 38, 39 years. Uh, Muay Thai, um, if you look at the sport of mixed martial arts, the main martial arts that have risen to the top, uh, Muay Thai for stand-up with the vast majority of the best MMA athletes around the world utilizing Muay Thai for stand-up, wrestling, boxing, and and uh, submission grappling or jiu-jitsu on the ground. And um, never in a million years, I think, 
growing up as a kid in Thailand, doing Muay Thai, that here I would be, you know, uh, coming to the States and introducing uh, the world of martial arts at its highest levels, you know, um, from around the world and bringing uh, real martial arts to America. Um, so it's been, a, it's been a wild ride. Chaudhry, you know, I've heard you say in the past that suffering is the journey that leads one to greatness. And I think that's what you're saying here. Yet, when you started, you know, learning Muay Thai initially, um, from what I understand, it was to impress girls and beat up bullies. So my question for you is, today's fighters, are they, did they get it? I mean, what's going on in their heads? Are they just trying to emerge from proper, are they just trying to beat up bullies or is there something deeper going on that motivates them? Well, I think, you know, the world of combat sports has become a global duopoly. So you have UFC in the West and you have one championship in the East. Um, and we are the two giants, if you will, the 800 pound gorillas. And we have a very different ethos. I mean, it's 180 degrees opposite from each other. I would say that UFC has a more blood sport, trash talking, controversy approach. We have a authentic martial arts approach, you know, Asia being the home of martial for 5,000 years. Um, although our roster is truly global, 50% of our roster is from Asia, 50% is from, uh, you know, um, the Western Hemisphere. And uh, I think the, the difference really is that, you know, uh, in one, you see the world's greatest martial artists who represent true martial arts in the same way Bruce Lee did um, versus, you know, all the anger and hatred and violence um, that the UFC espouses. That's not necessarily martial arts. That's fighting, but that's not necessarily martial arts. And I think um, I think America's ready for something fresh and new and completely 180 degrees opposite um, than what it, what exists uh, today in the American market, which is primarily UFC. I have so many ways I want to go with this, but I, I, I'm going to stick with what you just said. This sounds a lot more like if you took martial arts and you put it in the Olympics – this is what you would get. Now, I I could be dead wrong. I, I mean, uh, you know, you, you please educate me. But this sounds like it is the art of the sport from what you're saying. That, that's exactly it. I, I would say that, you know, one is the whole of martial arts. And, it, and you're absolutely right. It's the very, very best martial arts on the planet from around the world across multiple disciplines. It is the Olympics of martial arts. Um, and we do, you know, uphold ourselves. You know, me, me being a lifelong martial artist, I still train every day. Uh, in both Muay Thai and Jiu-Jitsu. And it's just something that I want to make sure that, yeah, I mean, I mean, the Olympics upholds certain values of sportsmanship, of conduct, uh, becoming of role models and superheroes, if you will. And that is exactly the same ethos that one has. Um, and it's obviously resonates very authentically around the world. Why do millions of parents, okay, send their kids to martial arts schools all over the world, all over the world? It is a... It's universally true. It's because they're trying to teach their children integrity, humility, honor, respect, courage, discipline, compassion, you know, uh, goal setting, uh, resilience and grit. All these wonderful lessons that martial arts teaches. Yes, can you kick someone's butt um, from learning martial arts? You can. Um, and you can beat up the high school bully. But the real true essence of martial arts is this journey of continuous self-improvement and um, the forging of, an, of a, a true warrior spirit to conquer adversity in life, uh, you know, and inheriting these incredible values that allow you to succeed in life uh, as opposed to just in the arena. So I think this is, again, something that American fans uh, gave us a huge, huge uh, reception when we came here in, in May in Denver for the first time. And I think it's just the fact that we're, you know, 180 degrees opposite of, of what exists here in the, in the current market in the, in the U.S. Um, it's just a fresh new... Um, at least in the, in the eyes of American fans, a fresh new um, ideology. But, you know, it's, again, martial arts is 5,000 years old um, with its roots in Asia, but truly has become a global phenomenon. If you think about martial arts, it's not an Asian phenomenon. It, it is a truly global phenomenon. Um, and I think that um, uh, it, it makes it for a very interesting time that, you know, the two global giants in combat sports, UFC and one, Arguably have the very best fighters on the planet. Both rosters are truly incredible world championship martial artists. Of course, I'm biased. I believe my <laughs> roster is better than is the best in the world. But one thing is that you can't deny is, is, is the true essence of martial arts versus, you know, what I would say is just 
pure, I guess, uh, blood sport fighting. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just the show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze, and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Well, Chakra, you know, you talk about the journey, and I have to take you back through that journey. Let's take you back, you know, after you did graduate from Harvard. You know, you worked for some firms. You know, you were an analyst at Fidelity. You were an MD at Maverick, at Lee Ansley's Maverick Capital. I believe you had a stint where Farallon funded a a hedge fund, uh, Zara Capital Management. So you're no stranger to Wall Street. You're no stranger to finances. Talk to us about the financial strategy for one championship and, broadly speaking, the financial outlook for the combat sports industry. You know, I, I did have almost 10 years on Wall Street, um, and so does our vice chairman. And we've been very fortunate in that some of the world's best investors have invested in, in the vision of one. Uh, so folks like Sequoia Capital out of Silicon Valley, yep. Guggenheim, um, you know, sort of kind of the, the old Vulcan shop, uh, formerly known as Vulcan. Um, you know, Singapore's uh, sovereign wealth funds, Tomasek and uh, GIC, Qatar's. Um, sovereign wealth fund, Qatar Investment Authority, um, iconic out of Silicon Valley as well. Um, truly blue chip, best of the best institutions when it comes to investments. And <clears throat> I think one thing that you know, as a founder, I, I'm truly grateful for is you know our vision is so large and so um, original, uh, if you will. And I don't mean like oh we're special about in sports or not, but when you start a sports property like we did 11 and a half years ago. You know, most sports properties take, call it 70 to 100 years to build. So F1 is 70 years old. EPL is 100 years old. NFL is 100 years old. NBA is like 70, 80 years old. Um, But we've been able to build, um, according to Nielsen, a top five largest global sports property in terms of viewership and engagement numbers across the board. And we would not have been able to do it um, unless we had these incredible investors who believed um, and investing $500 million into one to grow our audience, to grow our platform, to grow our brand, to grow our roster around the world. And the best analogy I give it is, you know, if you were going to build, let's say, the world's largest Disney world, uh, that's 10 times bigger than the one in Florida right now, it would take call it seven, eight years to build. You have to build the hotels, the restaurants, the the, uh, the, the, the rides, and, and it's just very exhausting. But once you build it, and it's the biggest and baddest in the world, you do open the doors, and it's effectively, quote-unquote, a um, monopolistic platform. And that's very much the same analogy for us, is that we've been very fortunate that investors have backed our vision of, let's build the biggest platform. Let's build the biggest roster. Let's build uh, you know a brand that resonates across families from, you know, with grandkids and kids and grandparents who can watch it on TV and not be worried about seeing anything offensive. Um, Let's build, uh, you know, a platform of content engine that delivers, I think this year is about 35 billion organic video views, Uh, not million, billion. 
um, putting us, you know, definitely the top handful of global sports properties at scale. Um, and that's just digital and social. And uh, so it, it's it's been a very difficult, tough, tough journey because it's it just never been done before. You know, to, to get to our scale after only 11 and a half years, when normally it takes 70, 100 years. Now, we've been lucky beneficiary of the global digital economy, right? The last, if you look 11, 12 years, if you look at the truly you know, the global economy has truly become digital, uh, where everything is interconnected from social media to commerce and, and everything else. And that we are lucky beneficiaries by us putting on the very best martial arts on the planet, uh, production value that's, you know, still to this day, um, widely regarded as the best in combat sports um, and so forth and so forth. It just took off. The business just took off in terms of reach frequency engagement numbers from fans around the world. And, and that would have been very, very lucky that somehow, um, you know, the stars aligned between the macro environment with, you know, the institutional investors who believe in our vision and then um, just getting very lucky with the right product at the right, with the right brand, the right ethos, the right values at the right time. Um, so, you know, it takes uh, a lot of luck for something like this to happen. You mentioned Bruce Lee earlier, and it's hard to believe. And I remember as a kid, I was shattered. It's been 50 years since Bruce Lee passed. And I, I just remember seeing all those movies and and probably the first person that I think of with martial arts is Bruce Lee. This this is hard to, to answer, but what do you think Bruce Lee would think about today and martial arts. Um, <laughs> again, not not to sound uh, uh, too biased as, as as the founder of one, but yeah. I think the fact that I'm a lifelong martial artist, you know, and I'm the only CEO uh, who's a lifelong uh, martial artist of, of the major global organizations uh, of the three major ones: um, UFC, One, and Bellator. And the fact that we've been able to stay true to the martial arts across disciplines, uh, whether it's, again, mixed martial arts or Muay Thai or kickboxing or submission grappling or uh, the other martial arts that we've showcased uh, on the one platform. I think Bruce would be um, ecstatic. You know, he would, he would love what we represent because in many ways, I agree with you. When I grew up, you know, Enter the Dragon was my favorite yeah. movie. Exactly. It was an incredible movie. And uh, I read all his books, his, you know, Tao Jit Kune Do and studied it even in, even though I was doing Muay Thai, I studied Bruce Lee's philosophies uh, for martial arts, and everything he he, he represents uh, resonated with me. and And I think that's why he said, uh, "I think he would love one championship." You know, he would love it because it, it's it's everything that he was as a martial artist and everything he was as a human being, uh, all rolled into one. Chaudhry, it's funny. You know, I'm from Fort Lee, New Jersey, so when I think of martial arts, I think of Jean Claude Van Damme. No, I'm just kidding. But but, but truthfully, I mean, you know, you mentioned you know some of your anchor tenants. Uh, in in one championship earlier, among them the Qatar Investment Authority. I know you, one is holding its first event in Doha, and it could happen as soon as this year. Talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, you know, um, Qatar has done a wonderful job, you know, leading the world uh, in sports. If you look at the Qatar World Cup, which they won the bid, I think twelve years ago or so, and no one thought, you know, in a million years that they would win. <laughs> And let alone throw the host the, the greatest World Cup in history, and uh, uh, you know sports is a very important initiative for the country, actually for the region, the Middle East, as they yes. predict the next 20, 30 years will run out of um, oil and gas, and they have to build their economies on something much bigger, and sports, you know, is truly a gargantuan industry. People don't realize. It's a $350 billion industry. Uh, if you compare that to Hollywood, which is a $30 billion industry, you know, it's not even close. Uh, and yet when people think of Hollywood, they think of it, oh, wow, it's a huge industry. Sports is a far bigger industry. And I think that is uh, what we're grateful for, the Qatar Investment Authority, uh, you know, taking an equity stake in one and bringing one to the, to the region. We're already broadcast every Friday live on uh, Bean Sports, which is the largest uh, sports broadcaster in the region with about 55 million subscribers. 
And um, going on ground there is just going to be another exciting milestone for us. Just in the same way for us, you know, entering America for the first time in May of this year and then, and then building on that with four uh, events next year. If, if forgive me because I and I'm I am learning more about this as you're talking every minute. Who are some of the biggest names right now uh, in the martial arts? Big names right now on one championship. So we have, uh, I'd say, probably our most popular athlete in America is Rotang, um, spelled R O D T A N G. Uh, when he when he came out uh, to compete in Denver. American fans went ballistic. It's actually on my Instagram. There's a video of him coming out and the American fans, literally the entire stadium erupted and started chanting his name. It was bizarre because I didn't realize that, you know, even though we're, we're, we're literally a nascent brand in America that everyone actually knew uh, who Rotang was and, and actually, you know, regard him. Obviously he's one of the best strikers on the planet, if not the best striker on the planet. And um, they received him very, very well, you know? So it was just one of these um, things where, the globalization of content, the globalization of heroes um, has truly taken uh, uh, the world by storm. If you think about just, you know, the last, let's say, 100 years of content, whether it's sports or, or music or entertainment, it's primarily come out of America. It's come out of, you know, um, Hollywood or Motown or, you know, the NBA. It's only been the last, I'd say, five years where you see true globalization of sports, entertainment, and music, where... Blackpink and BTS are the biggest bands in the world. You never would have thought that, you know, coming out of Korea where, you know, people don't understand the Korean language outside of Korea, and yet <laughs> they're the biggest pop band in the world. Um, you saw that with Squid Games as Netflix's most successful show in history. You saw that in, uh, you know, uh, Shang-Chi and stuff. I think it's just that, you know, people don't realize Asia represents literally 56% of the world's population. And it's a it's just very fascinating. It has, you know, Asia is a, a very diverse, rich continent with many different cultures and languages and, and religions and stories for that matter. And so I think the world is, you know, again, we have something very fresh and exciting and new for American fans. And uh, judging from our first sold out show in Denver, which we were blown away, we were, we were sold out several weeks before the event. Uh, and I just never, I didn't realize we had a U.S. fan base. Um, but yeah, we, 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 we've seen that, you know, whether it's in China in Thailand and Philippines, um, in the UK, um, in the Middle East, we've just seen our fan base literally, um, grow exponentially. And again, we're lucky beneficiaries of the globalization or rather the, the digitalization of the, of the global economy. Now you're speaking my language, Chatri. I mean, in addition to my, uh, night job here, anchoring Bloomberg Business of Sports with <laughs> Michael Barr, I run emerging market fixed income research for Bloomberg here globally. And, you know, one of the things that comes to my mind is the 1997 Asian financial crisis, the crisis that made you who you are, arguably speaking. And, you know, what lessons did you learn from that crisis? What lessons do you think Asia's learned from some of the more recent crises. I'm talking COVID. I'm talking the global financial crisis. And how is it looking to, I mean, just, you know, because I see it each and every day, but, you know, you're on the ground far more than I am. You know, what are you seeing on the ground? How is the, you know, how are these economies evolving? How, how is the regime change? How is the region changing? So I would say that, um, you know, the U.S. is still uh, the epicenter of finance, you know, Wall Street, um, in, in terms of sophistication, in terms of legal framework, in terms of, both buy side and sell side, the level of understanding. Um, and of course, the financial institutions in America. Um, that being said, you know, we've had many years, many, many years of, you know, monetary stimulus around the world from by central banks. And obviously it reared its ugly head with, with big inflation numbers um, a year ago. And then, and then now central banks are really clamping down um, and have done a, a reasonably good job in, in, in um, bringing inflation down. But I, I still am very nervous globally. Uh, you saw the, the run on banks here in America. Um, that can easily happen in Asia. And I would just say that while the continent has learned from the past crises, I don't think the financial institutions and, and, uh, um, you know, the populace is as sophisticated as uh, Americans are. Now, 
we did see the implosion of crypto here in America and, and the rest of the world. So maybe humanity doesn't learn. You know, we go through crisis. We go through a Great Depression here in America, you know, and yet history seems to repeat itself with the whole greed and fear and the boom and bust uh, cycles that we've seen throughout history in every country. So, you know, it's we seem to learn the lessons temporarily, even on a human level, you know. Um, everybody goes through a recession and, you know, uh, has more appreciation for everything in their life. But then when things are good, humanity kind of loses focus and uh, might indulge in excesses, right? So it just seems like um, it's human nature, unfortunately. Chatri, sit your tongue. To show you what that fire in the belly means, I know we're running out of time here, but I just want to give you a huge shout out because, like you said, you went from poverty and now you've been named Asia's King of Martial Arts by the Financial Times, Asia's second most powerful person in sports by Fox Sports. Business Insider also ranked you as one of Asia's top 100 business leaders. And according to Nielsen, one championship ranks among the world's top five biggest sports media properties. And that's alongside the NBA, F1, the uh, Champions League, etc. Chatri, thank you so much, CEO and founder of One Championship, for joining us on the Bloomberg Business of Sports. You are a great inspiration to a lot of people here in the United States. Thank you again, sir. Thank you so much for the time. I appreciate it, guys. Thank you. That's One Championship founder and CEO Chatri Sichadong speaking with Michael Barr and Damian Sassauer. Coming up on the Business of Sports, we turn to college athletes with the CEO of the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics, Amy Prevet perko There's momentum building that you can, you can look at many comments over the past six months by high-profile football, college football coaches saying one of the biggest problems in college football is we do not have a singular leader for our sport. That is straight ahead on the Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio around the world. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just the show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze, and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Bloomberg Business of Sports show, where we explore the big money issues in the world of sports. I'm Scarlett Fu for Michael Barr and Damian Sassauer. College football is top of mind with the season just getting underway and a lot of headlines lately with NIL and, of course, new conference alignments. So we got a chance to sit down and talk with Amy Prevet perko She is CEO of the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics. It's an independent group that advocates for the safety, health and, of course, education of college athletes. Michael joined us for our conversation where we went over some of those headlines and more. Let's take a listen. NIL, now that we've seen it in play, 
Has it been a good thing or a bad thing? Well, you know, for for those listeners who may not be tracking totally on college sports, uh, NIL stands for name, image, and likeness. And um, the rules changed two years ago that for the first time ever allowed third parties, uh, not institutions, to provide NIL compensation to college athletes. And frankly, that that has been the biggest change in college sports that we've seen in our lifetime. Uh, There are uh, some big positives. There are also some big challenges. Let me just uh, point out a couple of those. Uh, From the big positives, athletes are benefiting like never before from these new opportunities to earn compensation from their use of their NIL. And athletes are also learning real-life lessons about the business of sports and endorsements through legitimate NIL deals. Uh, Some schools, in fact, now have courses on personal branding and NIL contracts, all those uh, important things you you need to learn when you're in that business. Some of the changes uh, have also brought about significant challenges. Uh, One of those um, are recruiting inducements. Uh, recruiting inducements violate the basic rule that is in place that that schools um, and individuals acting for the school cannot, uh, you know, offer an NIL deal to to a, a prospect or even an athlete at another school um, to to induce them to enroll at the school. But unfortunately, those inducements are common, and at least up to this point, uh, the prohibition on inducements has not been enforced. Um, this atmosphere has led to a record high number of transfers. A couple, couple other quick uh, challenges. Uh, there should be more protections for athletes like agent registration and a common contract that protects against athletes agreeing to more than intended. Uh, the NCAA is now pushing hard for these adjustments. There's also a need for uniformity. Uh, we're in a situation where basically there's a patchwork of state laws on NIL. And two years into the changes, States, in fact, state legislatures are, are still jockeying to have the most permissive laws to give their schools competitive advantages. So federal legislation is now required to clean this up and achieve uh, uniformity. It definitely feels and, like the Wild West when it comes to NIL and how states are going to address it. Of course, this is kind of a long-term trend that we're dealing with when it comes to college sports and college athletes. Something that's um, also become more of a long-term trend is the conference chaos that we're seeing in college sports. Uh, we now have the Pac-12, it looks like, imploding, uh, the Big Ten getting bigger, the Big 12 also adding as well. Where does this end, Amy, from where we from where you sit? Are we headed to two oh, or three yeah. super conferences? And if so, do they separate from the rest of the NCAA? Well, it's a great question. You know, what you said is, is state, state the obvious here. College sports at the highest levels today are driven by one all-consuming pursuit, the money chase for broadcast revenue. Um, the situation we're currently in reminds me of a moment, frankly, in 2011, after Texas A&M and Missouri announced they would leave their longtime rivals in the Big 12 for the SEC and at that time, LSU Chancellor Michael Martin, who, who, who then was chancellor, he made a, a, a prescient remark, and he said, then I think it's far from over and that we'll end up with two enormous conferences, one called Fox and the other called ESPN. <laughs> uh, so, so make no mistake, the TV partners have played a key role in the realignment, and, um, and I think there will be more. Um, the Knight Commission, and where does this end? Um, there's a couple different ways it could end, but the Knight Commission, we've proposed a better plan, a better way for college football and, and a better plan for all the other sports. And, and in short, our plan uh, in December 2020, we called for the creation of a separate governing structure solely for the sport of FBS football mm-hmm. with the NCAA continuing to govern all other sports. And, and that, that plan would lead to a lot, correct a lot of issues, but also it would provide greater flexibility so that there could be affiliations um, for schools in the sport of football that are different than the affiliations in all other sports. That makes so much NCAA sense. Rule, right? Yeah, that makes so, so much ahead. sense, Amy. But I, I wonder, in the absence of their making changes and adopting that plan, Right now, who's actually in charge? Is it the NCAA? Is it um, the conference commissioners? Is it the university presidents? 
No, the NCA is not in charge of uh, of this issue. Um, you know, what really opened it up was the 1984 Supreme Court decision that that really opened up the path for conferences to have their own uh, media contracts. Um, and, and so who's in charge, basically, uh, at least in conference realignment world, uh, who's in charge of the conference commissioners and the TV partners? And, mm. you know, we're ending up where we are because, of course, the conference commissioners are doing the job the presidents have told them to do, which is create more money for our conference. And so they're working with the TV partners to create the largest footprint, uh, really based on the sport of football, because football really is driving the, the media revenue for, for those conferences. And again, this, those alignments may work very well for football, a sport that, that plays only 12 games a year. Yeah. You only have about five away games. It, it frankly does not work for everything else. The thousands of athletes uh, participating in Olympic sports. Bloomberg recently put out an article, uh, the NCAA athletes, and they're making big bucks off the TikTok prowess in their branding, which goes back to NIL, which goes back to the simple argument. If you are a college athlete and you're saying, eh, I don't like social media. Well, uh, I hope you, d- you don't like getting paid because you're not going to advance in if you want to make money if you're not connected to social media, according to what many people are saying about NIL. Yeah, I did read that the Bloomberg piece on on uh, the the NIL and social media, and we have seen that um, you know the the athletes who are engaged um, with social media certainly do have you know more of an opportunity uh, with with becoming influencers influencers in that area. Um, but again, yeah, athletes have to decide what's what they have time and capacity to do. Where's their passion? I think one of the areas to, to look out for as well moving forward with NIL is, is there is a challenge with Title IX in that, um, and this is aside from social media because with social media, of course, male and female athletes have the opportunity, uh, equitable opportunities in that area. And in fact, uh, you know, the data show that, that the female athletes are doing, you know, quite well mm-hmm. with uh, influencers and social media. But the area that, the, the male athletes are receiving a lot more NIL compensation are through deals offered by the third-party booster groups, commonly referred to as collectives. And that's where there's some concern. If, if those uh, booster groups are acting as an arm of the institution and they're, they're directing upwards of 90% of NIL compensation to, to only football and men's basketball players, then, then it could uh, there could be some institutional involvement there that triggers Title IX scrutiny. So that's an area that uh, uh, that we're watching moving forward. And that's and which brings up to the point what you said earlier to the college athletes: take the course, read the daggone contract, because if you don't read it properly, you you we've had problems like you said where. People are coming in and they say, hey, you can have your your name, image, and likeness through this and we'll pay you that. Unfortunately, they didn't read it because then it meant that they own you, period. And even if you try to go to the pros, you're still in the same problem. They still own the NIL, and it's been a, a heck of a problem for them to get out of it. Yeah, absolutely. You, you brought up a scenario where we, we've already seen cases that where athletes were taken advantage of. And, and that is a, a reason, you know, that what uh, new NCAA president Charlie Baker is pushing hard for a common contract that will provide protections for athletes. And, and we hope that type of enhancement uh, does move forward quickly. Um, I'm curious, Amy, what you think about the news that Michael O'Hare, who was the subject of the Michael Lewis book and, of course, the movie The Blind Side, uh, he's now suing the Tuies, uh, accusing them of taking advantage of him uh, because he was not formally adopted, but was actually uh, taken advantage of in their conservatorship relationship. Well, you know, that that particular situation is not one that... um that our, our group really gets into, but I would say it's it's just as it relates to uh, understanding uh, 
a contract and what is signed. Um, you know, if you, if you relate that to, um, athletes today and, and there's some similarities in terms of what, what you're signing over and, and your NIL rights. And at least in, in that case, how there's, as I understand it, some dispute with regard to royalties for, uh, uh the blind side, the movie, um, uh, which I personally enjoy. Um, but, but it, again, it speaks to, um, you know, athletes understanding, um, and having an advocate who can help them understand kind of the fine print of whatever they're signing, uh, as it relates to, uh, as it relates to their rights, uh, today and in the future. How soon do you think Congress or the NCAA will act to put in, uh, guardrails for NIL? You know, that's, it's a great question. Um, we are in a case where, uh, there, there is now, uh, some momentum, frankly, uh, around, uh, some type of, federal legislation. Um, before the uh, recess, there were two bipartisan Senate efforts producing draft le- legislation and, frankly, showing movements by both sides uh, of the aisle to a path that might be agreeable to all. Um, however, um, I think achieving legislation is still a big uphill climb. So it's more important than ever for the NCAA, uh, the conferences, the schools to do what they can to, to begin implementing and, and working with some of the states to, to, as much as they can, put in a common contract and some of these protections for athletes. Well, it's time for an episode of Amy Prevet Perko. This is your life. <sighs> Because you're a member of the Wake Forest Sports Hall of Fame, and in your days when you played, you were on the also part of the All American basketball team. And it, my goodness, I mean, it's you've accomplished so much when you played collegiate ball. Uh, it, it, can you take us through those days? What it was like when you played, and where you think things are today. Oh, well, thanks, thanks for bringing up, uh, you know, uh, a part of my life that certainly I have great memories of my playing days, and I took so much away from um, my involvement with college sports, my relationships with my teammates, and, and frankly, the things I learned that have helped me, um, you know, in my career. Um, and so those are the types of uh, experiences um, that – we want for all college athletes, and that's one of the reasons I've been passionate in my job with the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics, uh, whose mission really is to to focus on um, focus on the athlete and uh, putting forth policies that really put the priority on college athletes' education, health, safety, and success, because that's why college sports exist, and and. You know the headlines of uh, of the weeks around, you know which conference has uh, the largest media contract. Um, those those are not the reasons college sports exist, and and that's what uh, you know with our work. And we actually have a, a, a new report coming out next week that really frames it in a way uh, that we think is really critically important to today. Is that leaders must shift their focus from chasing the money to changing how the money is spent. So again, the the billions coming into college sports are really being used to create those opportunities for young women, young men Mm -hmm. to develop their human potential as leaders uh, through, through these great opportunities that, that college sports provides. Thank you for putting that into context. And I think it's easy to, overlook that and forget that when we see the headlines taking place and how uh, USC students will need to fly to Ann Arbor or Miami Mm -hmm. to compete in meets. It feels like we're not even pretending to factor students into the current equation anymore because swimmers are going to have to fly cross country constantly, it feels like. How is this going to work in practice? Well, in practice, it's because of the way the system is set up, that is the way it's going to work now. And that's why, again, our, our group, and, and we're seeing some building momentum around the proposal that that we put out in, in December of 2020 
They said, we don't have to do it this way. There can be a separate entity for college football and a, and a separate entity for all the other sports. And let's, let's do what makes sense, what's in the best interest of the athletes in all sports. Um, and so we're hopeful that, that, you know, these recent, uh, you know, realignments will really put pressure and, and it should put pressure on university presidents and conference commissioners to explain why the current structure is still in the best interest of all college athletes. Um, and, and I don't think they can justify that. No. And that's why it opens up. That's why it opens up. Now's the time for change. The other reason it's time for change, particularly with regard to this structure, is that college football, there's a, there's a major misalignment of revenue, authority, and responsibility at the national level with regard to FBS football. Unlike every other NCAA-sanctioned sport, FBS football championship, the college football playoff, does not contribute a dime to the NCAA, even though the NCAA continues to pay for tens of millions of dollars in legal and healthcare costs for that sport. Mm-hmm. At the same time, that college football championship will soon become a $2 billion enterprise annually with, with its expansion, and that dwarfs even March Madness. Uh, and the CFP is run by an LLC of college presidents and commissioners with no independent oversight. So that's one of the major reasons there needs to be a change. And, you know, while we're, we're talking about, you know, Congress getting involved with helping to fix NIL rules, while those issues are important, it's this bigger structural issue that really needs to be fixed to better serve college athletes. I know we're running out of time, but to add to that point, is it time to have a new governing entity for this problem, for the uh, FBS? And because like you said, hey, you know, it's they're not contributing a dime. Yeah, absolutely. At a minimum, the CFP should, the college football playoff revenue should be contributing money to the NCAA to pay for these national costs. But again, in our view, the better solution is for a new entity uh, led by independent directors who will not have built-in conflicts of interest um, to, to govern FBS football. And, and again, this is a, there's momentum building, but you can, you can look at many comments over the past six months by high-profile football, college football coaches saying one of the biggest problems in college football is we do not have a singular leader for our sport um, and, and a kind of a unified governing structure for their sport. Um, the, the leadership is fragmented among the different conferences, uh, again, who are trying to work in their best self-interest. So um, it would be a singular, a new entity to govern FBS college football would be better for the sport. It would be better for football athletes. And it would be better for all the other sports, um, the hundreds of thousands of athletes in all the other sports, who frankly right now are just in some ways with the conference realignment are being viewed as kind of tag-alongs. Let's do what works best for football without uh, prioritizing what, what works best for all those athletes. Amy Pervet perco Chief Executive Officer of the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics. Thank you so much, Amy, a a good friend of the show. We really do appreciate it. Joining us here on the Bloomberg Business of Sports. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That was Amy Pervet-Perko, CEO of the Knight Commission on Interlegiate Athletics. Up next on the show, we have a couple of legal headlines to review. Former USC superstar running back Reggie Bush suing the NCAA. And two NBA teams are suing each other. We'll learn more on the Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio around the world. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. 
Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Bloomberg Business of Sports show, where we explore the big money issues in the world of sports. I'm Scarlett Fu for Michael Barr and Damian Sassauer. This past week, we saw two big legal headlines in sports. One is the New York Knicks suing the Toronto Raptors. The Knicks claimed the Raptors were able to steal confidential information from them through a former employee. Plus, former USC star running back Reggie Bush filing a defamation lawsuit against the NCAA. To get a handle on all of this, Damien sat down with Bloomberg Business of Sports reporter Randall Williams. Let's first get into it with my hometown New York Knicks. Apparently, they are suing the Toronto Raptors for stealing scouting reports. What's going on over here? I mean, you, you hit the nail right on the head. They're alleging that the Raptors allegedly lured a former Knicks employee over who accessed a file 2,000 times, and they just Ooh. think he basically stole some stuff and... Gave it to the Raptors. Wow. So, I mean, so is this unusual for one um, one franchise to sue another? I mean, there, you would think, right, that the NBA would it get involved. It doesn't happen a lot. Yeah. I mean, does that, I mean when, when has that happened before? Oh, I mean, <laughs> it doesn't happen that much where you can't name it off the top of your head. But here's the thing. I was looking into this right before I hopped on, and the Raptors are 9-4 and four against the Knicks since 2020. And again, who would have thought, again, early in the season... But starting today, the Knicks have the 10th best record in the entire league. Final seconds. Brunson puts it up. Off the mark. And the Knicks lose a heartbreaker. The opportunity was there. I'm not sure that that'll be used, but it's important information. Yeah. When no. you're you're nine and four over, and you think about who's been more successful, et cetera, et cetera. Like the Raptors, outside of the season they won the championship, kind of fallen off a cliff since Kawhi's left. The Knicks have been more on the come up. So, could you say that the Raptors have had the Knicks um, number since 2020? Absolutely. Is it because of this guy? I don't know. You you be the judge. Well, well, you think about just the data itself, right? I mean, all those video clips, all that data, probably was a lot of it that he had to keep going back to the well to kind of get it all out there. You know, exactly. what do you, I mean, how do you apply a, a, a number, a dollar amount to that, to that, I guess, that treasure trove of data? I'm not sure. I mean, that's a, that's a great question as far as the damages that could potentially come from right? it. I mean, the NBA has given out uh, different damages to teams when maybe there a violation has happened, but nothing like this that maybe could have resulted in the outcomes of games changing. Now, granted, because the Raptors, like I said, haven't been as successful in the Knicks, you, I don't know if there's an argument like this changes the outcome of the Knicks seeding or anything like that. But for the Knicks, they're just ticked off about it because it's like, hey, we lost games that maybe we shouldn't have and wouldn't have if uh, this employee allegedly did not do what he did. Yeah, and and I'm actually looking at um, at your article. I mean, Synergy Sports Technology, it sounds like that's a third-party service that the Knicks pay for. And he hacked, or not hacked, he used his account to access that and get some data out of there as well. Is that not right? Exactly. 
Okay. Exactly. Okay. So this is really something that I mean. I mean, there's a, a, I guess a, a footprint out there. So I mean, you would think this is a cut and dry case. I mean, where does where do we go next? I mean, what, what's like the next shooter drop? I mean, whoever so depends I mean, on maybe, if they can go to a judge. Maybe it all it all depends on what the next, how the Knicks plan to pursue this, how passionately they they plan to pursue this. Because if the Raptors say we're sorry. Won't happen again. Who knows? Maybe they handle it right. behind closed doors. But if the Knicks are actually very upset, I mean, they could go pretty far. Well, I mean, Jimmy Dolan. I mean, look, kudos to him for 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 identifying it as quickly as he did. But you'd like to see it, you know, kind of stay in the living room, if not the bedroom. So I'm with you there, Randall. Here's another one. I mean, Reggie Bush uh, filing a defamation suit against the NCAA. Bring us up to speed there. Yeah, Reggie Bush isn't happy about the NCAA saying that he was a pay-to-play player uh, and. You know, the NCAA and Reggie Bush now go back over a decade from the time that he was at USC to his Heisman and all of his records and everything else basically being erased from NCAA football history. And now this. Um, and the crazy thing is pay to play is now legal. So the NCAA hasn't been doing themselves any favors over the last couple of years with NIL and their attempt to stabilize it. But when you have one of the most famous college athletes since 2000 come through and you strip him of his Heisman and his highlights have been watched by so many kids growing up. This is Bush and Bush again gets into the secondary. Look out. Slipped away from two tackles. He's at the 30 and tripped up from behind on what might have been a saving tackle. Reggie Bush right up the middle. Gets the outside. He's at the 30. It's another foot race. Cuts it back to the 20. Comes back to the near side of the field. He's going to go. It's going to be another USC touchdown. And now he's suing you for defamation. You're better off just establishing, reestablishing everything yeah. that he once was. But it's the NCAA. They're never going to do well, that. You know, it's funny. I've heard. I've had this argument with somebody earlier where they were trying to compare this to Pete Rose and gambling. Right mm -hmm. now, sports gambling is legal, but it's completely different, right? Because, right. look, you're not betting on yourself or your own team, which is, I guess, what you know Pete Rose was doing, um, mm -hmm. allegedly. But in this case, it's just so fascinating to me, Randall, that, you know, you're right. You're absolutely right. Why wouldn't the NCAA just say, you know, you know, the world has changed. You're right. You know, we reinstate you. And is it, would that make it all right? Or is he looking for financial damages on top of that? I'm not. I'm not. Sure. I, I think Reggie Bush would just like to be able to walk through the halls of USC at, without the hazard sign over his head. I mean, that's uh, essentially you. We remember all the, the USC teams and the memories and the Texas game. And, and Reggie Bush was a part of that time. I mean, Reggie Bush is your deep back. He gets it. Goes to the outside with it. Oh, around the corner. Touchdown. It took a while to get those arms up. I'm not sure these officials from the Big Ten have ever seen anybody fly through the air like Reggie Bush can. Probably the most electric running back that I've ever laid eyes on in college football. I don't, I don't know another one who, I mean, maybe Saquon Barkley, but it wasn't to the level of Reggie Bush. I mean, Reggie Bush is the reason that a lot of people wear number five. Yeah. And so I really think he just wants to be able to walk with the team, to have his number retired, to have his Heisman, because those are cherish memories in a lot of people's hearts and now it's this issue that's now over a decade a decade-long issue that has remained un unresolved well randall i hope you're white because you know the ncaa i mean is notorious for you know not giving former players or players their way especially when there are dollars on the line exactly. given the squeeze that's going on there so you know i hope you're right um randall williams thanks so much for joining us randall williams Bloomberg Business of Sports reporter Randall Williams, thank you again for joining of us. Of course, here of course. Sports. And the last thing I'll say is, is in reference to Reggie Bush, is that the NCAA hasn't been able to stabilize NIL as a whole. There's a lot of athletes who are making millions of dollars. There's some who are making thousands. It's just something that they haven't been able to do, just because it's on a state by state basis. There's collectives. There's a lot of different things out there, and a lot of ways to pay athletes. Reggie Bush's compensation was not nearly, nearly to the right, level right. of Bryce Young, C.J. Stroud. So when you look at that, I mean, we're pinching pennies here. I, I, I have to agree with you. But, you know, it's also a defamation suit, you know, that's right. kind of, you know, exactly. there's there's a punitive element there. So, you know, again, I think it's what Reggie's asking for. But I hope you're right that, you know, Reggie just wants he wants his trophy back and he's right. entitled to it. And, and I agree with you. So. So thanks for joining, Randall. Of course, of course. Thank you for having me. Looking forward to the next time. Special thanks to Randall Williams for his time. He's a business of sports reporter for Bloomberg News. That does it for this week's show. You are listening to the Bloomberg Business of Sports show, where we explore the big money issues in the world of sports. I'm Scarlett Fu. You can follow me at Scarlett Fu. And you can follow me on X at the Sass Hour. 
Tune in again next week for the latest on the stories moving big money in the world of sports. You're listening to the Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio around the world. Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just the show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. Elon, Inc. From Bloomberg Business Week, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.